all have that person in our lives who seems to be connected to everyone. You can be intentional about your network while still being human. In order to build strong connections with others, you really have to be strongly connected with yourself. I believe that meaningful networking has been the single greatest contributor to my good luck. You can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. Hi, this is Annie Riley. Today I'm joined by Todd Satcher Doty, who's the founder CEO of Pipe Dream. And previously, Todd was the founder and CEO of Brightroll, which was bought by Yahoo in 2014 for $640 million. So we're really excited to chat with you today, Todd, about all things networking. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So when I say the word networking, I'm curious what comes up for you. Yeah, I mean, there's really two things that come up for me with the term networking. First, I think of networking as maybe one of the most foundational elements of having success in business or frankly, in any field that requires interactions with other people. So I almost couldn't think it's more important. And secondly, I think the term is like kryptonite. Even if you say the term, it makes it feel salesy and something you want to avoid. I think the concept is important, but I do everything to avoid the topic as it's branded as networking. Do you have a rebrand that you like? You know, it's just relationship building is really at its core, valuable in its own right, and obviously pays tons of dividends over a career or over the the life of a company. I feel like networking like just makes this very transactional activity that feels a little bit one-sided and a little swarmy. So I try to avoid that as a, as a concept. And if we think about a long-term relationship that you've been able to cultivate that has had a really big impact on your career to date, what would be one or two of those long-term relationships that you'd point us to? And how did you keep that relationship alive? Two relationships that come to mind. One was really like a launching relationship, one that sort of kind of got me onto a different trajectory. And then the second relationship is somebody that actually has become somebody that I actually invest with on a kind of weekly basis as an investing partner. So someone who started early in my career, like changed the trajectory of my career, but ultimately became like a business partner over time. The first person that really comes to mind was a gentleman by the name of Steve Abbott. And Steve Abbott was essentially my first boss in my first job after college. I had some control in getting in his group at a firm called Roberts and Stevens, which was an investment bank, but somebody who ultimately through both, I would say mentorship, but also being my primary recommender, both formally, like literally writing my letter of recommendations into business school, but also informally just sharing a ton of his experience and making introductions for me and sort of pointing me in the right direction made you know, just a tremendous impact on like the earliest part of my career that ultimately led to many other relationships. Mm -hmm. And if you think about how you cultivated that in the early years, you know, I think some folks look at the senior people working around them and think, I'd love for that person to be a recommender or a supporter to me, but don't know how to necessarily make that transition. What would be your recommendation for how folks could turn that into more of um, a mentor relationship? What were some things that you did to get that support Um, from Steve? I mean, in many ways, I think that high achievers do want to be mentors for other people. They're just sort of overwhelmed with 
I could mentor or be a supporter of many people, hundreds or thousands, and therefore they get a bit paralyzed about where to spend their time and sort of how to add value to people earlier in their careers. And I think a lot of it is just the first step of essentially raising your hand. And I don't mean literally asking for the support. I just mean like some people are going to stand out from the crowd in terms of their aggressiveness or being persistent in pursuing that sort of mentor-mentee relationship. But also I think it's like, People want to bet on success and they want to spend their time uh, making investments in things that are going to produce returns. So if you can find a way to you know, build that relationship, a lot of times if it's a, somebody in your organization, it's by being an outperformer or by demonstrating potential or finding ways to you know, add value to things that they're working on. Those are the things that are going to grab somebody's attention and say, okay, of the hundred people I could spend time with, I'm going to choose to spend time with this person or, or sort of lend my credibility to them. And I, I've honestly experienced that a lot as a mentor myself or as a, a somebody's boss later in my career. But at that time, you know, it was simply just doing the best job I could and trying to shine. And you mentioned now being in the position of being a mentor. Are there any things you've noticed when folks have been making an ask of you that make it easier for you to say yes? Or is there anything about the folks that you've decided to invest in that really stands out that makes you excited to support them? One of the things I'd be critical of myself is I probably say yes too much. So, you know, oftentimes when people ask for, you know, quick coffee or they want to make a connection or they have all my feedback, I tend to be much more biased than people I've reached out to, frankly, in my career to do that. And so maybe I maybe I do it on a too significant of a basis. But generally, I would say that that allocation of time is almost always driven by what I view as like the ambition or I would say the potential of the individual asking, you know, some of that actually comes through quite clearly in the ask. You know, if somebody has outlandish expectations for something they're working on or something that seems unrealistic or they seem somewhat disconnected from like the reality of the situation, then I would kind of back off on that, right? But if someone has, you know, a plan and is very ambitious, they're not there yet, but I can see, oh, this person potentially could achieve that. And that's like a magnet for me. I'm drawn to that. That's something I want to support. And yes, sometimes those things don't prove to be valuable or it ends up being a miss. But I, I'm in a bias towards, you know, sort of ambition, persistence, tenacity. Those are the things that I'm going to grapple onto as maybe this is somebody I should spend more time with. And what are the specific things you would observe that let you know this is somebody who's tenacious? This is somebody who's going to go the distance. Are there any behaviors or, or qualities specifically that you'd pick up on that would be a signal to you? I mean, the most obvious one is it is so easy to find a personalized reason to connect with somebody. Mm. I mean, if you're willing to spend the time, you can listen to podcasts somebody's been on, listen to interviews, read things that they've written, check out their business. There is like an unlimited number of ways that someone could write me a very personal note about something that in my history or in a shared experience or something there's overlap in our background, some reason why there would be a sort of a, a bias towards leaning in and building that relationship. And to me, I just think like you can smell that out in an email in five seconds. If someone writes you a 15 paragraph email where 99% of it seems like they've sent it to a million people, you know, you're just going to disregard that immediately. If someone sends me a two or three sentence email with completely specific things that are relevant to my background or overlap between our things we're working on or, or might have some shared history. I mean, I'll know that instantly. And uh, my capacity to consume and prioritize email is very high. I'm going to give that 
a few seconds of read, but the people who've spent that time do stand out. And you mentioned there was another relationship that you wanted to refer back to your biz, the one who became an investing business partner to you. I'd love to hear a little bit about what that relationship was, how you cultivated it and how it's helped you. Yeah. So that gentleman is Warren Hoffman. Uh, and I met Warren Hoffman actually 2003 or 2004 when I had a startup idea and a friend of mine said, oh, you have a startup idea. You should pitch, you know, my friend Warren Hoffman. And I met him and we had a great intro conversation, but it became very clear to me that Warren was a true authentic connector. He was just somebody who is like deeply embedded in the Silicon Valley startup ecosystem. And we also shared a very clear personality trait, which is we both loved organizing events. And so that was really like the cornerstone of how our relationship was built. And I, I invited him to my events and he invited me to his events. But if I map that relationship over a long period of time, you know, I vividly remember 2006 driving up to San Francisco from a company that I was working at called Plaxo, which ironically was a contact management product, very close to this concept of building relationships. And you know, I was debating whether I should leave my job to start a new company. And he just said on the phone, he's like, first of all, you should leave your job. Second of all, I believe in you and I believe in the company. And third is I'll be your first check. That was the catalyst that I needed to make that leap. So nothing could be more foundational than putting somebody in business, which is writing them their first check and encouraging them to leave their job. You know, but it didn't stop there. He ultimately helped me raise my first financing. Quite a few years later, I ultimately put him on the board when my co-founder left the company. And, you know, the relationship just grew from there. It was probably, you know, about 10 years later that we ended up formalizing an investment company together and, and doing investing. And I could go through the laundry list of things we've done since, but it was purely organic from the beginning, just shared values and ways that we thought we could help each other. That's awesome. And where does that relationship stand today? I mean, today, Orrin and I raised the venture fund. We're actually on our second fund together, and we're essentially in business together in a much more formal and scaled way than we were you know, over the years. But it was very iterative through that entire process. It was really a kind of a 15, 20-year journey of just getting to know each other, helping each other, being supportive of each other in many different roles. He's been on my board. I've been on his advisory board. We started a company together. We invested together. We've invested separately, et cetera. On the topic of your investing, I saw that you've done a, a lot of deals. You're involved in some really high-profile companies like Chime, Datavant, and a bunch of others. What has been the role of relationships in your investing career? When I was first starting investing, when I was sort of getting my feet under myself in terms of understanding what I was doing, when I was starting to write bigger checks than I ever written before, in all of those early days, the vast majority of investments I made were with people I knew personally. And if I look over the trajectory of my career as an investor, the best investments I've made, which is a little bit tied to the fact that the majority of the early investments I made were all tied to personal relationships. You know, as it comes to the present, I think it, you know, I can't rely wholly on that. So, you know, the actual CEO of a company that I might invest in, you know, maybe a third of the time or a quarter of the time is somebody I knew. But of course, even if I don't know them personally, whether you're doing diligence, whether you're talking to a potential or existing customer, whether you're trying to reference any part of that industry or category, you're leveraging personal relationships. So it, it's as core to the process of investing as any other part of the investing process in my mind. Mm -hmm. On the investing side, is there a example or an anecdote of 
a relationship that played a big role in, in getting into an investment or, or working on an investment that you're particularly excited about? I can give two examples that I think are great. Uh, I've written about also extensively, but so the first is actually Chime. So Chime, for those you know who don't know the company, it's it's a neo bank with I think three or four million customers and has completely disrupted you know sort of banking services for people that were historically unprofitable for traditional banks to serve, but can be wildly profitable if you have a kind of digital first model. There were two founders of Chime, one of which was the CTO, a gentleman by the name of Ryan King. And Ryan King and I actually worked together at Plaxo. Ryan was the uh, VP of engineering of that company. And when after I left, Plaxo was acquired by Comcast. He had a kind of four-year uh, engagement with Comcast as part of the acquisition. And I thought Ryan was world-class. And, and I've said many times, I he probably thinks I tried to hire him once or twice at Bright Roll, but I feel like I tried to hire him like eight or nine times because every time we talked about potentially hiring someone, I said, well, what about Ryan King? You know, and every time he was like, not interested, um, I've got a great relationship with Comcast, you know, maybe I'm going to start my own company. And so I have this sort of simple model, which is if you know somebody who's amazing and you want to hire them, but you can't, then the second best thing is you should invest in them. And when he eventually came around to pitch, which at the time was a you know, mobile app based like couponing company tied to your credit card, which to be honest, made no sense to me at that time. And I knew nothing about that category at all. It was just simply a bet on on Ryan because I thought he was, you know, world class. He was truly unique. And that was actually the first check I ever wrote in a startup was that company. And unfortunately for me, I didn't have a ton of money, so I didn't invest a lot. But obviously it's worked out great. Uh, and I couldn't be more happy for him and the team. But, you know, that was 100% a direct personal relationship. The second story I'd share is a, is another company that's had a pretty incredible run is a company by the name of App Lovin, which always has, I think, has a funny name. People who don't know it don't know what it does, but it's a public multi-billion dollar company, does, I think, around two or three billion dollars of revenue. It's been wildly successful and it's in the mobile app monetization space. And they ultimately uh, went into creating their own mobile apps, primarily games as a publisher. Um, and I think it's it's unlikely I'll ever invest in a company or be involved in a company like Chime or App Lovin at that early stage that will reach the heights that either of them have achieved. So it's sort of unique, I think, to think about those two stories. But I was actually introduced to App Lovin by a gentleman by the name of Sargur, who happened to be a business school classmate of mine. And he said, you know, I know that you're the CEO of a company in the advertising space. I was focused on video, which was kind of like the new big category in online advertising. And he said, this gentleman, Adam Froge, is starting a company in mobile app advertising, which could be the next big space and ultimately did become sort of the next big space and said, I think you could be super helpful to him. But it was really just a friend connecting one of his friends to another one of his friends. And at the time, you know, App Lovin was, I think, less than 10 employees and they weren't even raising money. So I became an advisor to the company. I've told Sar, like, for the rest of my life, I don't think he'll ever pay for anything in my presence because this casual introduction to a company with eight employees, you know, ended up being one of my most successful, you know, financial gains as a result of being an advisor to the company. And I would always say this also with Adam present is I can't think of a company I added less value to. So Adam was truly unique and, and didn't need advisors or help, but I understand the logic of connecting two folks who are early in, in categories together. Mm-hmm. Great. And once you were introduced to Adam, what were some things that you did to build trust and really make the most of that connection, right? Because the introduction takes you 
to the door. And then there must have been things that you did to build that trust and um, build that relationship with Adam from there. Can you think of anything that you point us to? I truly gave him my best thinking, completely unfiltered with no expectation of, you know, response. Like at that time, I don't think I was trying to be an advisor or being involved in the company. It was just like, I'm going to give you my raw feedback the same way I would give my raw feedback to you know, a friend or somebody who's working for me or anything. I just said, I heard this over the last hour. Here's the three things that jumped out in the conversation. My advice or recommendation, take it for what it's worth is X, Y, and Z. And there were a few other things in there, including like who else to talk to and some ideas that like that he should dig deeper on. But I did specifically say my number one piece of advice is X and he, you know, dismissed it outright, which again, is totally fine. I mean, that's the whole point. But if I put myself on the receiving end of that, I think it's like, hey, this is going to be a person that I can talk to and will always be hundred percent transparent and no filter and not transactional. Terrific. So you mentioned that you really love organizing events and I would love to hear more about what type of events you've organized and the role that that has played in your ability to build and keep up with relationships in your career. Yeah. I mean, I, when people ask me, what can I do to be a better networker or how can I be more embedded in a community that's important to me? Or, you know, how can I build relationships in related to my startup? My one of my superpowers is bringing people together and organizing events. So it's often my my number one recommendation for others. Events are an underestimated way to get leverage in building lots of personal relationships. I'd say both quickly, but but also over time, because it's not just about a quick connection. It's also, you know, a reason for touch points with people over time. My own personal story, which I'm happy to share more about, but you know, I sort of started as like a party promoter. Like that was something I did just for my own personal interest. I did it in college. I did it in San Francisco when I moved to the city. I never did it, you know, professionally as my job, but it was something that I always loved doing. And it was a way for me to build relationships outside of my sort of core, obvious personal friendships and start building the broader set of relationships that I didn't know what what they would turn into. But when I moved to San Francisco in 1999 and I started organizing events, they were, you know, 100 people, then 500 people, then thousand people than 2000 people. You know, if I look at the people that went to those events, many of those people ended up being some of the most important technology founders and investors in the world. Now, I didn't do it for that purpose, but that really set like the foundation of what I ended up doing, you know, events for many other purposes. You know, I'm 45 now, I'm not throwing parties at nightclubs anymore, but I often organize dinner events with CEOs or broader events that bring together people of the same industry or around a specific topic. And I find it's really the exact same tactics, right? You focus on a topic or theme or a concept that you think people will be interested in. You get a handful of anchor tenants that other people will be interested in being around and hearing from and building relationships with. And then you curate that environment so that, you know, everyone who attends has a good experience. And I think that works if a, with a 10 person dinner or a thousand person event. I'm super interested in this piece of your career that you had. Could you point us to one or two of your favorite events that you've hosted over the years and tell us a little bit about how you set it up and maybe what came out of it? There's one early in my career, this was in around 2006, 2007, a handful of us, myself and the gentleman I talked about earlier named Oren Hoffman, came up with this idea of founders brunches. So at the time, almost all of the founders that we knew 
you know, did not have kids, had a lot of time on the weekend. I would say some were married, but but not that many were married. So many of us had free time on the weekends to meet up with other people. And so we came up with this idea of the Founders Brunch, which was somebody would open their house and essentially organize a brunch. I don't remember exactly if it was like a potluck or it was just, you know, a small group of us kind of brought things together. But we then tried to get essentially founders who had really nice houses basically open up their house and host the event. So it wasn't that hard to say, hey, we're going to bring, you know, 50 founders or 100 founders over to your house on a Sunday and we'll like cater it or get the food organized. Most people were super excited because they wanted to meet other founders. And and it wasn't a time in Silicon Valley where, you know, founders were inundated with invites to these kind of things. And I think we did it for about two to three years. And we did about once a month. And we got some amazing locations. Like we did it at Peter Thiel's house. I think we did it at Keith Raboy's house. I hosted one in my, you know, modest apartment at the time. And there were quite a few, you know, successful founders that were willing to kind of open up their nice homes and host other founders. And we sort of became the center nodes, right? Like people wanted to come to the event. It was, it wasn't exclusive per se, but it was kind of like, you felt good getting the invite. And, you know, over time we did have to curate it a bit, but what a powerful way in retrospect to build, you know, relationships with people that are starting companies in Silicon Valley. I don't think that model, by the way, would work today because, you know, there's like 100x the number of founders and they're each invited to about 100x the types of events. But it worked for that moment in time. What do you think might be the today version of that? What might work for today? I think that the easiest way to translate anything that worked in the past to the today version is you just narrow the aperture of what the focus is, right? So if you're in Austin or you're in Miami, some of the models that worked in Silicon Valley 10, 15 years ago probably will work. So maybe it's your specific industry founders or your stage of company founders, right? You kind of narrow the aperture, but I, I really don't see any reason why the exact same model works because if you're running a series B fintech company in LA, there is tremendous value in knowing everyone else who is. And again, maybe that's already been done. Maybe series B is too late, but I just think of it as like you embed yourself as deeply as possible in the category that is most important and growing the fastest and good things happen as a result of that. Mm -hmm. And then once you got everyone in the room, what were the things that you did or that you'd recommend people do to really make it amazing and leave people wanting to come back once you get them into the space. One of the underappreciated things about events is that events with great people tend not to need to be curated in, at all in terms of content. Again, I go back to 2006. You go to a founder event in 2006, 10 of the 50 most important founders in Silicon Valley, and you get five, 10 minutes with each of them just because you're milling around, it, you know, it's like a stand up kind of eat and chat with people. The events were only like two, two hours, two, three hours. There doesn't need to be anything more than that because those people are content themselves. Simply bringing the anchor tenants to the event that are content themselves is enough curation. Mm -hmm. And how did you get Keith Raboy and Peter Thiel and the likes of those folks to host these events? Well, all you need to do is get other people to organize with you that know those people. So, you know, I use the same strategy even when I was a party promoter back in, you know, my college days is you just, you just get a handful of people that know a lot of people involved and your value to them is I'm going to organize everything. You're adding tons of value for them, which is they get to put their name on an event and be involved and they don't have to do any work. So it's not a hard pitch. You mentioned you had a second example from more recent in your career. 
Yeah. Well, one of the things I love to do now when I meet oftentimes like an early stage or a young founder is I just say, you know, what is the topic that is like number one on your mind right now? And then I try to curate something around that topic, because if it's number one for an important emerging CEO, I almost guarantee you it's important for many others. And one that comes to mind actually was there was a CEO who said, I have this Q&A, you know, all hands Q&A system in my company. And I don't, I'll give you the exact context. This was right when a company called Expensify had sent out an email to 10 million customers to tell them to vote for Joe Biden. And this CEO said, the number one question on the Q&A for all hands was, should we send an email to all of our customers to tell them to vote for Joe Biden? And the number three question in the Q&A board was, should we cancel our contract with Expensify? And he said, I just have absolutely no idea how to handle this topic. And I sort of paraphrased it as being a CEO in a highly politicized environment. Oh, by the way, I personally, as a CEO, I have no idea how to manage that. And I will guarantee you every other CEO that I know is struggling with this problem. So at that time, actually, Orrin and I together, we organized a lunch for CEOs on being the CEOs of high, during a highly politicized environment. And to Oren's credit, he actually got the CEO of Expensify to come to the lunch. And, you know, we had kind of like an off the record share the conversation about the topic. Now, again, I don't think he needed to be there for the, for the conversation to be super valuable, but did it make the event that much more, you know, exciting to be a part of and to sort of be able to talk about this with the exact context of someone who had went through that process and made a decision? Of course. And so that to me is sort of later in your career when maybe you have a little bit more access to more higher profile individuals and can maybe curate something that's maybe more burning or more topical. But to me, again, foundations are fundamentally the same. Yeah. And I love the idea of picking a group that you want to help or you want to get to know and asking them, what's the number one thing on your mind? And then using that as the jumping off point to actually be helpful in answering that question or solving that problem. I think that can be broadly applicable, even if you don't have that guest in mind. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like you're putting the work of creating the content on the attendee at some level. And of course, by the way, if someone picks the topic, they'll invite people also. Totally. Could you point us to a mistake that you've made or a common mistake that you've seen other folks make when it comes to networking and relationship building? I mean, there's lots of mistakes people make, I think, in building relationships, but I think the most fundamental one is always about being transactional or too transactional, because I think the most valuable relationships in my life have been people who are highly sophisticated at managing relationships, and those people are the most apt to sort of recognize highly transactional people up front and, and sort of dismiss them as a result. You know, I think about this term a lot, which is like being long-term greedy. I don't think anybody criticizes folks for building relationships as part of their, you know, career or corporate trajectory and being long-term greedy, like leveraging those relationships over their lifetime or, or the length of their career to, to drive value. But it's about being that short-term greedy where people just immediately respond negatively and just kind of like outright reject the process. And I think part of that is just because over the long term, they're actually on your team. So when someone's on your team, they want you to succeed, right? It's about building the relationship so 
that they're on your team. And that just takes time. That's human nature. Uh, so I just think generally, you know, avoid being transactional as much as possible for as long as possible. What's a good example of being long-term greedy? I've never heard that term and I really like it. Is there someone that you've seen do that really well or could you paint a picture for us around what that would look like? Well, I mean, this is not industry specific. This is career general advice. But I always advise people to like find a bull market and embed themselves in it. That's like my number one most foundational lesson. And I sort of define a bull market as like a rapidly growing industry where there's economic returns on ambition and work ethic. And so it really is completely generic in terms of what it could apply to. I believe that there's any bill market that I had focused on early in my career and embedded myself in it, I would have found ways to be economically successful over the long term, right? And I think the real question is like, what is a bull market? Where is it? And that's really person specific. I mean, I think you have a bull market in geographies. You can have a, a bull market in you know, hardware or software or consumer goods or products for Amazon or anything. And the best way to embed yourself in it is to build personal relationships with people that are already there or are rising stars or have high potential in that bull market. And so to me, that's absolutely core to this idea of not being transactional because who knows the crypto industry in Miami 18 months ago, like who knows where that's going to go. But I guarantee you there are like 10 people that are in that community that have been deeply embedded and building relationships and organizing events and bringing people together and making connections and finding ways to add value that they didn't know how that was going to ultimately sort of materialize in terms of their career or economic success. But I'm pretty confident if you've been there for the last few years, you've had success. Yeah. And once you sort of put yourself in that position, right, and you're exposed to the people who you're interested in getting to know, interested in building your network with, what are some tips for going beyond the superficial and really kind of making that relationship deeper, more meaningful as you move ahead, right? Maybe not necessarily quickly if you're being long-term greedy, but deepening that relationship over time. I mean, I, this is where I go back to the authenticity point. To me, if you're authentically there, it's just not that hard to find ways to sort of deepen those relationships because you're committed to that community. Like you're like, I live here, I'm working here, I'm gonna spend the next X number of years of my life here. My goal is to expand this community and make it more impactful and have the people who are here now gain success as a part of that. Like. I don't feel like you have to do a lot more than that because if that's your mindset, people are going to see you, you know, in a repeated basis over a long period of time. You're going to find ways to have shared experiences. You're going to find ways to connect them with other people. You're going to find ways to, oh, you mentioned this. Did you know this other thing? And you're, you're just going to find so many ways to enrich their, their own career or their own trajectory that I just don't think you have to do anything to force it. Just physically being there and doing the things you would do to embed yourself is the the way to deepen those relationships. And because it's authentic, there's no risk of being perceived that you're doing anything else. You know, you're someone who's been a part of many different communities. You probably, sounds like you've lived multiple places. You've worked at several different jobs. You've started multiple companies, invested across a ton of different companies at this point. How do you maintain those relationships over time? Yeah, I do think social media has sort of enabled people to keep loose ties 
you know, sort of, I don't want to say fresh, but I just mean like kind of relevant over much longer periods of time than they used to. So I think being active on social media and leveraging those tools does help. I also, I sort of jokingly call this effort, I'm still alive, but I, but I think there is some truth to it, which is people that you've built relationships in the past, like they just get busy and they, they have their own markets they're focused on and their own communities. Maybe they've moved. And so it is good to have some sort of regular drumbeat that you're still alive. And, th and that, I think social media actually does that for people that are connected, but there's a lot of people that are not connected to you. Uh, and I want a great example, like somebody I knew early in my career, Reed Hoffman, who ended up founding LinkedIn. I mean, you could argue Reed Hoffman doesn't do, need to do relationship building. He was the CEO of LinkedIn and he's a billionaire and he's famous. Right? He still sends out like a quarterly email newsletter called, you know, in case you missed it, it's the acronym for that. And he basically says, here's like what I've been up to. Like, here's a podcast I was on. Here's a book I'm working on. Here's an interview I did. Here's an article I wrote. And, and, I, I, and I'm like, if he's willing to spend that time and not be so egotistical that like, I'm famous, I don't need to tell people what I'm doing. Like everybody should be doing that, right? It's just a drumbeat of, hey, I'm still here. I'm still doing stuff. I'm still relevant. Maybe there's some things we could do together. Something I hear people say in reaction to things like the email newsletter is like, who am I to send an email newsletter? You know, I'm not doing as interesting projects as Reid Hoffman, for example. What would you say to folks who are concerned about that or shy away from sending those kinds of updates? I mean, my initial response would be that's bullshit. I mean, it's the fact that you're writing the email newsletter is probably an example of the reason why it's worth paying attention to what you're doing because you're out there, you're you know, you're, you're building something, you're growing your brand, you're, and of course, you're going to find reasons to create content or aggregate content that's relevant for the newsletter. I mean, one of the greatest examples of this I love, and, uh, you know, a few people have done this in different industries, which is the what I've been reading lately newsletter. I mean, you literally don't even have to create anything. Like, you literally just go about your normal life, but you happen to be reading interesting stuff in a vertical that's relevant to other people. And you just say, here's the five things I read this month that were most relevant. You're just leveraging the work of other people. And there's a thousand ways that you can add value without necessarily being the individual creating the YouTube video or the long form article. So I just completely reject the theory that you can't find a way to create that content and be relevant. Yeah. And there's a, a theme in several things you've shared around adding value, being helpful, right? Like curating the content. So people might say, oh, thanks so much. I I've been looking for things to read or watch or solving the number one problem on their mind. Is there anything else that you would point us to that you do in order to add value or to be helpful to others when you think about that as an authentic way of building your network? I'm going to sort of go to what I think is a misperception, which is a lot of people say, how could I add value to this smart, famous, successful, rich, whatever it is, person who has more experience than I. And I think the thing that people miss is that when you engage in this activity of like proactively building relationships, being in the flow, being physically present, bringing people together, it's actually that act that creates the things that you could do to add value. So like when you're early in your career, you don't know the answers, right? But 
other people who are successful actually do have some of those answers. And when you're the organizer, all you have to do is put those two people together, right? You don't have to have the answer for one of them. You simply have to know somebody that can help them. And so the misperception is, is that I don't know where to start. Well, the way you start is by building that sort of organically created pool of relationships. And then you start bringing those people together. That's the value in the beginning. You don't have the value, right? But by bringing those people to solve each other's problems is a very low cost way for you and low cost way for them to add value. But you get the benefit of that because people see, oh, that relationship was brought to me by this individual. Doesn't mean they had the answer, right? They just had the the relationship and the willing to willingness to engage. So I think the sub lesson there is you just have to get started because these things self-reinforce. It actually gets easier over time, right? The hardest part is starting. Love that. Are there any non-obvious things you would advise people to think about when they are looking to build relationships? I mean, one thing that might be not obvious to people is that when people start out, they often sort of steer away from people who seem to be doing similar things in similar industries because they say, oh, like, why would I start working with them? Because they're going to view me as a competitor or they're going to view me as uh, somehow like stealing their ideas. And my experience has actually been the exact opposite. The people that are most willing to work with other people who are building relationships are people who highly value that activity themselves. And in many cases, like when you are the person who's earlier in your career or a little bit more green in the efforts, like there's lots of ways to help that person because that person's probably further ahead in the effort. They definitely don't view you as a threat. And if anything, you're like giving them leverage and extending the efforts they're doing. So I would almost like try to spend time building relationships with the relationship builders because they're also the most connected people. And they will tell you very quickly, don't go down that path or those people are a waste of your time or that's not going to work in this market. So I would say gravitate towards the people who you observe as being most successful in that area, essentially doing structurally the same thing and just find ways to get close to them. Love it. Reflecting on everything we've talked about today, what's the single most important thing of everything that we've discussed today? I think the single most important thing is authenticity. Relationship building is like the absolute core of like human nature. And the absolute worst thing I think you can do to bring to that, you know, sort of experience is something that is like incongruent with who you are. But if it's congruent with natural and unique things that are special about you as an individual, I'm personally way more interested in engaging on those fronts. Well, thank you so much, Todd. It's been such a pleasure talking to you and hearing all about your experiences and getting your advice. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. When you have a warm connection, everything is easier. Making a sale, finding a hire, landing a job. But keeping track of who you know and understanding the full scope of your network is really hard. Connect the Dots makes it simple and automatic to keep a complete record of your professional relationships in one place. Then share your network with friends and coworkers in a much more effective way. Get on the waitlist at ctd.ai.